I'm Heather. And I'm Susan. Come along with us on a journey through the book of Judges here on the Bible Book Club. Welcome Welcome to to the the club. club. In chapters 17 through 19, we began to discuss the darkest days of Israel. These final chapters of Judges are a street-level view of how people were living in that time, and everyone was living as they saw fit. Our first story was the story of Micah, the man who tried to manipulate God with a lost Levite. The Levite did not stay long and left with the tribe of Dan. They were equally lost. They had lost their land and their God. The next story was about another Levite who sacrificed his own concubine to a gang of rapists to save himself. All right. Recall that this horrific story is placed at the end of the book of Judges to serve a purpose. It's a street level view of what was going on in the nation at the time. The characters in the story are anonymous because the author wants them to represent larger groups. The father-in-law represents the behavior of every father or host, because remember, he was the host when they came to visit. The Levite's lack of compassion is an example of every Levite who should be serving the Lord and serving the people and all the different regions. The concubine's abuse is a picture of every woman's suffering and actually everyone who was, um, you know, at risk, the poor, um, the orphans. So why is Israel so dark? Because everyone does as they see fit. Anyone in the least bit vulnerable, a traveler, the poor, a servant, slave, child, or woman was at risk for wicked abuse. Back to our story. When we left the wicked Levite and his concubine, they were on the journey home. At the time of their departure, she was either already dead or unconscious. From the next line in our story, we learn that if the concubine had been alive when they began the journey... She didn't survive the journey. Scene one, the Levite loses it. Chapter 19 continued. Verse 29. When he reached home, he took a knife and cut up his concubine limb by limb into 12 parts and sent them into all the areas of Israel. Everyone who saw it was saying to one another, such a thing has never been seen or done. Not since the day the Israelites came up out of Egypt. Just imagine we must do something. So speak up. What the Levite does next eradicates any hope that the Levite had had any compassion for the concubine in their physical intimacy in their daily relationship and in the hours before her death. Because when she is dead, his treatment of her body is brutal. He cut his concubine limb by limb into pieces. This is a woman he had made love to dozens of times. The Levite has given himself over to whatever disgusting disrespect he sees fit. And this is the behavior of a Levite, the most holy of the 12 tribes, the ones entrusted to minister God's word to the nation of Israel. The author wants us to understand that the entire nation is wicked. The nation of Israel has become more depraved than the Canaanites they came to conquer. His goal, the Levite, before he drops off these pages is to shock the nation for his own personal revenge. He turns the sin of the men in Gibeah into a civil war. 
Scene 2, Rage and Revenge Replace Rationality, Chapter 20. At first, you're going to want to applaud the Israelites. They are properly shocked and motivated to do something about this vile atrocity when they receive a limb of the concubine. However, what they do is circumvent every law Moses gave them to ensure justice. They choose instead to do whatever they see fit. Chapter 20. Then all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and from the land of Gilead, came together as one and assembled before the Lord in Mizpah. The leaders of all the people of the tribes of Israel took their places in the assembly of God's people, 400,000 men armed with swords. The Benjamites heard that the Israelites had gone up to Mizpah. Then the Israelites said, tell us how this awful thing happened. So the Levite, the husband of the murdered woman, said, I and my concubine came to Gibeah and Benjamin to spend the night. During the night, the men of Gibeah came after me and surrounded the house intending to kill me. They raped my concubine and she died. I took my concubine, cut her into pieces and sent one piece of each region of Israel's inheritance because they committed this lewd and outrageous act in Israel. Now, all you Israelites speak up and tell me what you've decided to do. All the men rose up together as one saying, none of us will go home. No, not one of us will return to his house. But now this is what we will do to Gibeah. We'll go up against it in the order decided by casting lots. We'll take 10 men out of every hundred from all the tribes of Israel and a hundred from a thousand and a thousand from 10,000 to get provisions for the army. Then when the army arrives at Gibeah in Benjamin, it can give them what they deserve for this outrageous act done in Israel. So all the Israelites got together and united as one against the city. The Levite makes his case and demands justice, but was war justified? It is ironic that the Levite wants justice for the way his concubine was treated when he was so selfishly unjust to her. To the Levite, he is the victim. It was his property that was destroyed, but the real victim is the concubine. She was the pawn of her cold-hearted husband and entertainment for a gang of rapists. The tribes unite and have an opportunity here to stop the bleeding and consider God's laws. Moses provided specific laws for the prosecution of injustice in Exodus 20 through 23 and in Numbers 35 and in Deuteronomy 17 and 19. The law specifies that there should be two witnesses, yet only the Levite is questioned. The law specifies that the witness should not give false testimony. Yet the Levite declares that it was the men of Gibeah implicating the entire city instead of the group of wicked men who were involved. Then to add fuel to the fire, the Levite states that the wicked men meant to kill him. Uh, this could have been a possibility if he had given himself over to their lust versus handing over his concubine. However, he is dissolving himself of any guilt for not defending her and handing her over. He makes it sound as if he escaped, but she got caught when in fact he sacrificed her to save himself. And now he wants Israel to sacrifice its men in battle for his revenge against Gibeah. The united 
leadership listens to one witness give false testimony and makes a decision that is in direct violation of Deuteronomy 19, which says this. Deuteronomy 19, verse 15. One witness is not enough to convict anyone accused of a crime or offense they may have committed. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If a malicious witness takes the stand to accuse someone of a crime... And the two people involved in the dispute must stand in the presence of the Lord before the priests and the judges who are in office at the time. The judges must make a thorough investigation. And if the witness proves to be a liar, giving false testimony against a fellow Israelite, then due to the false witness as that witness intended to do to the other party, you must purge the evil from among you. Had they investigated, had the Israelites really known God's word that Moses gave them, nothing that follows would have happened because without any further investigation, the Israelites threatened the tribe of Benjamin. And in scene three, we have the first civil war in the promised land. Verse 12, the tribes of Israel sent messengers throughout the tribe of Benjamin saying, what about this awful crime that was committed among you? Now, Turn those wicked men of Gibeah over to us so that we may put them to death and purge the evil from Israel. But the Benjamites would not listen to their fellow Israelites. From their towns, they came together at Gibeah to fight against the Israelites. At once, the Benjamites mobilized 26,000 swordsmen from their towns, in addition to 700 able young men from those living in Gibeah. Among all these soldiers, there were 700 select troops who were left-handed, each of whom could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. Israel, apart from Benjamin, mustered 400,000 swordsmen, all of them fit for battle. The Israelites went up to Bethel and inquired of God. They said, who of us is to go up first to fight against the Benjamites? The Lord replied, Judah shall go first. The next morning, the Israelites got up and pitched camp near Gibeah. The Israelites went out to fight the Benjamites and took up battle positions against them at Gibeah. The Benjamites came out of Gibeah and cut down 22,000 Israelites on the battlefield that day. But the Israelites encouraged one another and again took up their positions where they had stationed themselves the first day. The Israelites went up and wept before the Lord until evening. Until they inquired of the Lord, they said, Shall we go up again to fight against the Benjamites, our fellow Israelites? The Lord answered, Go up against them. Then the Israelites drew near to Benjamin the second day. This time, when the Benjamites came out from Gibeah to oppose them, they cut down another 18,000 Israelites, all of them armed with swords. Then all the Israelites, the whole army, went up to Bethel, and there they sat weeping before the Lord. They fasted that day until evening and presented burnt offerings and fellowship offerings to the Lord. And the Israelites inquired of the Lord. In those days, the Ark of the Covenant of God was there with Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, ministering before it. They asked, shall we go up again to fight against the Benjamites, our fellow Israelites, or not? The Lord responded, go, for tomorrow I will give them into your hands. Then Israel set an ambush around Gibeah. They went up against the Benjamites on the third day and took up positions against Gibeah as they had done before. The Benjamites came out to meet them and were drawn away from the city. They began to inflict casualties on the Israelites as before, so that about 30 men fell in the open field on the roads, the one leading to Bethel and the other to Gibeah. 
while the Benjamites were saying, we are defeating them as before the Israelites were saying, let's retreat and draw them away from the city to the roads. All the men of Israel moved from their places and took up positions near Baal Tamar, and the Israelite ambush charged out of its place to the west of Gibeah. Then 10,000 of Israel's able young men made a frontal attack on Gibeah. The fighting was so heavy that the Benjamites did not realize how near disaster was. The Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel. And on that day, the Israelites struck down 25,100 Benjamites, all armed with swords. Then the Benjamites saw that they were beaten. Now the men of Israel had given way before Benjamin because they had relied on the ambush they had set near Gibeah. Those who had been in the ambush made a sudden dash into Gibeah, spread out and put the whole city to the sword. The Israelites had arranged with the ambush that they should send up a great cloud of smoke from the city and then the Israelites would counterattack. The Benjamites had begun to inflict casualties on the Israelites, about 30, and they said, we are defeating them as in the first battle. But when the column of smoke began to rise from the city, the Benjamites turned and saw the whole city going up in smoke. Then the Israelites counterattacked, so the Benjamites were terrified because they realized that the disaster had come upon them. So they fled before the Israelites in the direction of the wilderness, but they could not escape the battle. And the Israelites who came out of the towns cut them down there. They surrounded the Benjamites, chased them, and easily overran them in the vicinity of Gibeah on the east. 18,000 Benjamites fell, all of them vigilant fighters. As they turned and fled toward the wilderness to the Rock of Ramon, the Israelites cut down 5,000 men along the roads. They kept pressing after the Benjamites as far as Gedom and struck down 2,000 more. On that day, 25,000 Benjamite swordsmen fell, all of them vigilant fighters, but 600 of them turned and fled into the wilderness to the rock of Ramon, where they stayed four months. The men of Israel went back to Benjamin and put all the towns to the sword, including the animals and everything else they found. All the towns they came across, they set on fire. This is not the days of Joshua when they march around Jericho and the walls just fall. This was a serious struggle and thousands of men die. The Israelites threaten, demanding that the Benjamites hand over the Gibeonites and the Benjamites refuse and prepare for war. So then what followed were three battles. Battle one, the Israelites inquire of the Lord who shall go first. And they're told Judah, but God gives no promise of victory as he did in so many of our past battles. The United Israelites are then defeated. Battle two. This time the Israelites are less sure and ask God, should we go up against our fellow Israelites? Perhaps the fact that this is a war against brothers is finally sinking in on them. On top of that, the Benjamites are great warriors. Ehud, the second major judge, was a left-handed slinger from this tribe. Apparently, it is a thing in the tribe of Benjamin, and it makes them formidable. But God answers and says, go. And again, the United Israelite forces are defeated. Battle three. This time, the Israelites act according to the law. They go to the tabernacle and consult the high priest Phineas. They fast and offer sacrifices and then inquire what to do. Phineas, the high priest and grandson of Aaron, inquired of the Lord. 
And God says, go, and finally, I will give you victory. Something that Joshua usually got first time around. We will never know why the Benjamite leaders didn't just turn over the guilty men. Perhaps because Israel asked for the whole town of Gibeah. The battle was won eventually, and harem, or total destruction, followed. When the smoke from the smoldering ashes of the decimated towns cleared, so did the minds of the united Israelites. And it dawned on them that the tribe of Benjamin was at risk for extinction. Only 600 men who had fled into the hills surfaced, not one woman or child, and guilt settled in. What were the United Tribes of Israel to do now? In scene four, two wrongs do not make a right. Chapter 21. The men of Israel had taken an oath at Mizpah. Not one of us will give his daughter in marriage to a Benjamite. The people went to Bethel, where they sat before God until evening, raising their voices and weeping bitterly. Lord God of Israel, they cried, why has this happened to Israel? Why should one tribe be missing from Israel today? So now it's dawned on them. Oh yeah, 12 tribes were all supposed to have a, a part in the promised land. The problem is, apparently, when all the leaders met at Mizpah to hear what that evil Levite had claimed happened to him at Gibeah, it made the Israelites so mad at the Benjamites that they made a vow never to let their daughters intermarry with the Benjamites. They shouldn't have made a vow. God had rules about that too. And now, because of the vow... If the Benjamites can't marry their daughters, and there's only 600 Benjamites left, the tribe will vanish. Verse 4. Early the next day, the people built an altar and presented burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then the Israelites asked, Who from all the tribes of Israel has failed to assemble before the Lord? For they have taken a solemn oath, and anyone who failed to assemble before the Lord at Mizpah was to be put to death. Now the Israelites grieved for the tribe of Benjamin, their fellow Israelites. Today, one tribe is cut off from Israel. They said, how can we provide wives for those who are left since we have taken an oath by the Lord not to give them any of our daughters in marriage? Then they asked, which one of the tribes of Israel failed to assemble before the Lord at Mizpah? They discovered that no one from Jabesh Gilead had come to camp for the assembly. For when they counted the people, they found that none of the people of Jabesh Gilead were there. So picture the scene. The leaders are all together like, darn, oh my gosh, what are we going to do about Benjamin? We didn't think about it. If we killed everybody from Benjamin, there would be no tribe. And then they're thinking, we can't give our daughters to marry these 600 guys. Darn. Is there anyone who didn't take that vow? Who wasn't at Mizpah when we took the vow? And the leaders discover that only one tribe didn't show up to fight, the men from Jabesh Gilead. So that tribe never made a vow not to let their daughters marry the Benjamites. Yes, we have candidates. And because they had all taken another oath at Mizpah, so here's the second oath that comes into play. Another oath was made at Mizpah to put to death any one that did not attend the assembly at Mizpah against Benjamin. So they get this idea. If we kill the people of Jabesh Gilead because they didn't show up to fight, except for their virgin women, then guess what? We can give them to the 600 Benjamites. In other words, 
we were wrong to kill all but 600 Benjamite males. And now the tribe is at risk to be extinct. But we can make it right by killing all the people of Jabesh Gilead except for the virgin females. It's a vow loophole that they needed to kill more people to make a match that will save the tribe of Benjamin. It's so sick. This whole plot is so sick. They made two vows. Well, they weren't supposed to marry Canaanite into the Canaanite daughters into the tribes anyway. So why were they even worried about the vow they made? Because they keep marrying the wrong people to begin with. I know, but these are the leaders. So they're trying to draw a line. But again, it's a They're trying line. to it's do the right sick. thing, even though they're doing what it's they see fit in the eyes of the wrongs do not make a right. No, they were wrong they to begin with. Hot mess. Hot mess. <laughs> Continuing in verse 10. So the assembly sent 12,000 fighting men with instructions to go to Jabesh Gilead and put to the sword those living there, including the women and children. This is what you are to do, they said. Kill every male and every woman who is not a virgin. They found among the people living in Jabesh Gilead 400 young women who had never slept with a man, and they took them to the camp at Shiloh in Canaan. Then the whole assembly sent an offer of peace to the Benjamites at the rock of Rimon. So the Benjamites returned at that time and were given the women of Jabesh Gilead who had been spared. But there were not enough for all of them. Okay, remember where we started in this story. First, we have the we we started with the abuse of one woman by a Levite. She was a concubine, remember? Yeah, but I also remember you said that there were no names and that was symbolically representing all, all of Israel. So all really women. it's saying that all women were being treated this way. And this is where we see it happening. Then we have the rape and murder of one woman by a gang, still the concubine. Then we have the murder of an entire tribe of Benjamite men, women and children, except for 600 men. Then we have the murder of the entire clan of Jabesh Gilead, except for 400 virgins. Then we have the forced captivity, marriage, and potentially rape of the 400 virgins by 400 of the surviving Benjamite men. What about the other 200 men? And how do we go from one to hundreds, just like the author was saying? This is as if it was happening to all of them. Scene five, three wrongs still don't make it right. Verse 15, the people grieved for Benjamin because the Lord had made a gap in the tribes of Israel. And the elders of the assembly said, with the women of Benjamin destroyed, how shall we provide wives for the men who were left? The Benjamite survivors must have heirs, they said, so that a tribe of Israel will not be wiped out. We can't give them our daughters as wives since we Israelites have taken this oath. Cursed be anyone who gives a wife to a Benjamite. But look, there is the annual festival of the Lord in Shiloh, which lies north of Bethel, east of the road that goes from Bethel to Shechem and south of Lebanon. So they instructed the Benjamites saying, go and hide in the vineyards and watch. When the young women of Shiloh come out to join in the dancing, rush from the vineyards and each of you seize one of them to be your wife, then return to the land of Benjamin. When their fathers or brothers complain to us, we will say to them, do us the favor of helping them because we did not get wives for them during the war. You will not be guilty of breaking your oath because you did not give them your daughters. So that is what the Benjamites did. While the young women were dancing, each man caught one and carried her off to be his wife. Then they returned to their inheritance and rebuilt the towns and settled in them. At that time, the Israelites left that place and went home to their tribes and clans, each to his own inheritance. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. So first, the leaders see fit 
to take these 400 women and literally offer them up as a peace offering. These are women. Then the elders of the assembly, because they've fallen 200 short, the leaders of the nation devised another plan for the remaining 200 bachelors, just as they see fit. They give the okay for these 200 guys to kidnap women, force them into marriage. And since the purpose of all of this was to populate the tribe of Benjamin, rape her if necessary to get her pregnant. The leaders of Israel have devised a plan that is nothing short of giving men the license to rape. Our story started with the outrage of Israel over the rape and murder of one woman and has progressed to the widespread murder of men, women, and children, the decimation of families, and the rape and captivity of 600 women, all for the good of the nation of Israel. As individuals and as a collective people, the Israelites in each situation did whatever they saw fit to do. The Israelites have fallen so far. It even seems right to them to murder and traffic their own people. At the close of the book of Judges, we find that the Israelites' idolatry has perverted their relationship with God. All through Judges, they have done evil in the eyes of the Lord. Now, they don't even recognize evil. They just do what they want. The result of a wrong relationship with God is a wrong relationship with others. Israel's relationships between individuals, families, and tribes are all wrong. When we do as we see fit, love suffers. Yet this is the greatest commandment. At the center of all we have and will discuss as we read through the Bible is that God desires a right relationship with his people. He created us to have community with us because he loves us and he wants us to love him. The Bible states that the greatest commandment is this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Because if we love him, we reflect who he is so that others will see him in us and love him also. This was true for the Israelites, and this is true for us. Therefore, it makes sense that the second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. The command to love your neighbor was given for the first time in Leviticus 19. And the criteria for how to love was given very specifically also in Leviticus at the very start of this new nation, Israel. God wants us to love others because when we love others, when we attempt to live in community the way God designed it before the fall, others get a glimpse of the hope, joy, and love that comes only from the Lord. Israel was upside down in their relationship with God. They were repetitively unfaithful to him. They did not love him. And he was consistently merciful to forgive them because he loved them. If only the Israelites had remembered 
Leviticus 19. Leviticus 19, verse 15. Do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. Do not go about spreading slander among your people. Do not do anything that endangers your neighbor's life. I am the Lord. Do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor frankly, so you will not share in their guilt. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. If only the Israelites had remembered what Moses had taught in Leviticus, this dark part of their history would have never happened. At the end of Judges, the lesson for us to remember would be the same. The New Testament reiterates Moses' message to love your neighbor multiple times in Matthew, Mark, Luke, Romans, Galatians, and James. Listen to just one of those verses, Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven. Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Relationships should be based on love. Our love for God leads to the love for others. And the Israelites had lost sight of that. In season eight, the book of Ruth, there is a beautiful example of God-led love. I promise there will be no dark depravity in the book of Ruth. It is a story of hope and joy because Israel needs a king. And through Boaz and Ruth, one is on the way. What's a club without friends? If you're enjoying the Bible Book Club, why don't you share it? And then you can say, welcome Welcome to to the the club. club. New episodes drop every Monday and get all episodes now on Amazon Music. As always, head over to SusanMe.com slash Bible Book Club for show notes from today's episode. Bible Book Club is hosted by Susan Merrill and Heather Rubio, edited by Buck Buchanan, produced by Haley Mawatt.